So we're seeing a lot of adults that experienced trauma through the course of COVID, whether it was because their entire livelihood went away because their job no longer required them or that isolation piece is such a big part for so many people, whether we're kids or adults, you know, human beings, we are social creatures and we need personal interaction. And while all of this Zoom stuff is wonderful that we have these things today, it's not the same for people. So the number of people who feel that family relationships or interpersonal relationships were lacking and now they lack trust or other experiences that occurred just because of that isolation. This is the Auto Community Podcast. All interviews presented on the Auto Community Podcast are designed to provide information and inspiration only. Guests of the podcast may present opinions and anecdotes that are solely their own. And as always, before beginning any treatment protocol, consult with your preferred medical provider. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. This is Erin, and today my guest is someone I met a little bit ago here in Texas. Uh, she has a very amazing center where she facilitates counseling for uh, lots of kids with pans, pandas, as well as general um, pediatric issues and, and family counseling as well. Um, they also have neurofeedback in their center, which is pretty amazing also. And I'm excited to have her on. Please welcome Mary Parker. Mary, welcome to the show. Hi, Erin. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. So Mary, you are a licensed professional counselor and uh, you are seeing some, some kiddos come through your doors with different neuroimmune disorders, you know, pans and pandas kinds of situations. So I know that, you know, you've talked to me personally about how you handle those situations, but as a counselor, when a, when a parent comes to you with concerns about their child, what do you take as your role in that particular um, situation? How do you address whether or not the kid might have some physical symptoms going on as well? Well, in the counseling field, just like with the medical field, each case is individual. So it really depends on the symptoms that are presenting. And then what are the red flags? What were the signs that something was about to be presenting? You know, somebody with pans or pandas, it very often is they got sick and then all of a sudden they started expressing OCD type behaviors or they were very angry or, you know, a number of other symptoms that can come up. So definitely talking to the families during the intake about what was going on before this presented you know, and have you seen changes in it? Has it gone up? Has it gone down? Parents that say, you know, my kid's pretty normal most of the time, but then every now and then they just seem to be losing it. And we're not really sure why they're angry. They're throwing things, they're screaming. And this just isn't my kid, you know, talking to the family about, well, what is the trigger for that? And then if we've determined that we believe something like PANS or PANDAS is responsible for it, reaching out to an integrative doctor or a naturopath or another type of physician to facilitate and coordinate with to help the family. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, I, I think a lot of times many of these disorders do present in a way that appears very psychiatric. And so I'm sure that your doorstep is probably one of the first places that a lot of these parents go. and. 
What kinds of resources do you offer for them? Obviously referral sources and things like that, but a new diagnosis can be really challenging for, for a parent to accept when, you know, they come in and they say, oh, my kid is just, you know, a little quirky or something like that. And then come to find out, well, maybe there's something bigger going on. So how do you help the parents to find those resources or to cope with some of those new realizations? So for the resources, we help with all of the referrals. So we don't send a family to somebody that we don't trust. We make sure that we reach out to providers that we believe are going to be able to help in the situation. Um, So we'll match the family based on their needs as well as their financial resources to the correct physicians. And then very often, it's really about working with the family to understand some of the stuff your kid really doesn't have control over right now. Their brain is inflamed. So helping the family to be able to deal with those outbursts and understand that it's not something that the child is necessarily doing on purpose. So a lot of parenting sessions, a lot of family sessions, and when the kiddo's brain is not inflamed and they're in, you know, a stable time working with the child themselves. Yeah, I think that's really important because a lot of times as parents, you know, we feel the need to, you know, parent. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, when we see things that look like behaviors, um, there, there's a natural tendency for most parents to go to a place of discipline or, you know, redirecting or things like that in, in lieu of really having a deep understanding of, okay, in this moment, my child just needs to know that I'm here and be supported instead of, you know, me trying to parent in that moment. So maybe you could speak a little bit to that. How do you talk to parents about the appropriate time um, to bring in the parenting versus, you know, in, in the midst of a, you know, all out raging flare kind of a situation? So really across the board, when it comes to parenting, when a kid is having a rage, My parenting approach is that we're not supposed to talk at this point in time. The kiddo is not hearing you anyways, whether they're in a flare or it is just a behavior. It's more about being present, letting them know that you're still there. You still care about them. You still love them. Be there while they go through the rage. It's more about witnessing it and letting them know that they're in a safe place in that moment. And then we talk to parents about how to stay calm while it's going on because parents also get angry. We, We are all just people. You know, when, when somebody's throwing something at us and yelling at us, talking to the parents about this isn't about you, this is, you know, your child's upset right now, or they're in a flare, they don't have control over this, just be there, be present, wait for them to calm down, and then help them when they have calmed down to be able to process what just happened. Yeah. So I know that when I was in those kinds of situations, um, the advice was for me to reduce my stress levels, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is quite challenging uh, to be able to do that when you're in the midst of, you know, something like a pans pandas flare with your child. Um, for me personally, I was also dealing with autoimmune disease on my own. So, you know, those, those kinds of situations are extremely challenging. And, you know, the typical advice to me anyway, was always, well, you need to reduce your stress levels. How do you recommend that someone in a situation like that, where they can't, you know, escape from it, right? They can't, you know, just, you know, go on a three-day retreat even, (laughs) how do you recommend that someone cope with a situation like that when they're still in the midst of it? 
So we really recommend that when a family is in the midst of this, trying to focus on being just more mindful. We know that families can't escape from it. We know that they're living with it on a daily basis. There's not necessarily somebody that they trust or believe can come into the house and help with childcare so that they can get out even for a date night. So it's really about finding the moments. Really enjoy that cup of coffee in the morning before everybody gets up. Smell it, you know, hold it in your hands. When you take a shower, make sure that you're using body care products that are healthy, but have a good scent that also, you know, encourages your mood. Take a walk in the backyard with the kiddo if that's what has to happen. Play with your dog, play with your cat. It's about finding the moments when we're going through these things. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. You know, we talk about so much in this community about the idea of self-care, but sometimes self-care is very overwhelming for a lot of people in situations where, you know, we think, okay, self-care is me uh, going to get a massage or something like that. But in those particular situations, you know, parents are often not able to do those kinds of things at all. They're not even able to leave the side of their child. So, so I do think that's really important being able to, to connect and ground oneself in, you know, those very specific smaller moments. And while, you know, still trying to work towards some semblance of healing so that, you know, we can eventually get to the point of, I can go now and get an hour massage and not be so incredibly uh, stressed out if my phone rings, you know, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. So let's talk a little bit about that because I do think that's another point is, you know, all too often, I think as, as parents, and I'm focusing a lot on, on the parents right now, but we'll get to more of the kiddos, but as parents, you know, you, you are in that situation, um, a highly charged situation, um, fight or flight and a lot of PTSD. And so, after the fact, once we've gotten ourselves and our child healed, at least to the point when we're, you know, feeling much more stable, how do you then deal with the PTSD remaining for a lot of these parents? So one of our number one intervention for somebody with PTSD, whether it's a parent that's been through a situation like this or a soldier, police officer, firefighter, is neurofeedback. We know that we can locate inside of the brain where the trauma is being stored and we can help to take down the walls, but also the heavy emotionality and the anger that comes with trauma. So working with a family through neurofeedback and then also um, working with them in counseling in different fashions, depending on what's most comfortable for that person to process the traumas and the angers that they've experienced. Yeah, I think that's great. So there's a lot of different forms of neurofeedback. Could you just explain a little bit about what you do specifically? Um, so our process starts with a QEEG brain map. So we um, put a cap on the head that has 19 locations. We insert gel, which is basically just like an ultrasound gel that allows each of the um, sensors that's on the cap to read the brainwave activity. And we can get a pretty decent brain map that shows us how each of the brainwave patterns are talking to each other all the way through the brain. So we can see, you know, are the delta waves too high or too low? Is there too much beta activity? Is there too much gamma activity happening? And then when somebody comes in for an appointment, depending on what the symptom is that we're working on. So if we're working on PTSD, I will have programmed the computer with a trauma protocol. So we're asking the brain not to be responding with PTSD present. And while they are watching a TV show with sensors on their head, 
as long as the brain is working the way that I'm asking it to, the TV show stays on. But if trauma is still the predominant brain signal that is occurring, the TV will dim or shut off. So at no, we're not sending any signals into the brain. We are monitoring brainwave activity and encouraging it to be working in a healthy fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now at this point, um, when do you introduce those kinds of interventions? I know that, you know, sometimes if a kid is in a flare, you know, the idea of even putting a cap on is, you know, not, <laughs> not going to fly. So um, when do you find that introducing those interventions is, is most appropriate? So it's definitely not when we're in a flare, you know, doing brain training on somebody who's in a flare isn't going to be very successful just because the brain's not going to respond the way that we need it to. It's already inflamed and the signals are being thrown in fashions that just wouldn't be prudent for doing neurofeedback. So we want somebody who has been working with us through counseling and with a medical provider. We've calmed down the flare, the inflammation has really subsided and that the family feels comfortable in taking other actions that can hopefully keep us from having future flares or future trauma. Yeah, I love that. One of the things that comes up often is a lot of kids uh, with these neuroimmune disorders don't have a lot of recollection. And so how do you deal with that in a counseling session when a child, maybe in a family session, when the parents are discussing something and the child has no recollection of that particular incident? So depending on the cognitive level of the child and also how willing they are, we can handle it a few different ways. One of the ways is that, you know, while they're having a flare, one of the family members does record what the behavior looks like so that we can then look at it in a safe environment together and ask them, how much of this do you remember? Do you remember what you were thinking or feeling? Were there any body sensations that you recall? Or was it all just, is it all just completely white for you? Other times we can work with family members in having them write out what it was that occurred. And again, being in that safe environment, having a counselor there, letting the child know you're not in trouble. We're here to talk about what happened, what you were thinking and feeling, and what your family members were thinking and feeling, and then to help everybody to move past that. Yeah. So what advice would you give to a child who at a certain point maybe does start to recollect some of those behaviors? And and I know for younger kids, a lot of this centers around feeling like they're a bad kid or um, a bad child. And and so how do you address that with with a child who comes in uh, for a counseling session? So the big focus of all of our counseling sessions is you're not bad, you're just acting mad. So it's about identifying that feeling, sitting with it, and then using a coping skill, and then figuring out how to problem solve when we're in a, in a more calm position, because we never want to react from a place of anger or confusion. We just don't make good decisions that way. And that's really how we try to focus on it. We don't focus on you being a bad kid. We, we focus on trying to make better decisions and in helping not only the kid, but the parents to make better decisions. Because again, as parents, we sometimes say or do the wrong thing while our kid is having these types of reactions. So it's not just about identifying and trying to fix what's happening with the child in those moments, but identifying and trying to fix what's happening with the parents in those moments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so much of it really does boil down to how a parent can navigate some of these issues for sure. 
and making sure that the parent is able to, you know, be calm in those situations instead of acting or reacting in anger themselves, Mm -hmm. which is difficult to do. I I will admit, you know, there are still times when those, you know, you you just get triggered, you know, as a Mm -hmm. parent and, you know, we're human, as you said before. So yeah, it's really important for us to remember that we have some of these qualities in and of ourselves in ourselves as well. So yeah, it's, it's a good reminder. Okay. So some of the more challenging things that come across your doorstep, the things that might endanger the child or the family. So I'm talking about like extreme rage or eating disorders, you know, extreme eating disorders that are causing the child to rapidly lose or gain weight, you know, those kinds of things, um, threats of, of violence, you know, which I think a lot of people are hesitant to talk about in this community for obvious reasons. People have a fear of going to other professionals and telling them, you know, I know even in my own situation, there are people who uh, maybe the first appointment, they're not as open as um, yeah. yeah they might be, you know, in their home situation. So how do you really get to the heart of, you know, what's actually going on? Because I know at times I'll have people say, well, I, you know, my, my son or daughter has some anxiety, but it might then come out. Well, yes, they have anxiety, but they're, (laughs) they're having like very, very extreme behaviors and in different situations. So what kinds of things are you seeing and, and how do you deal with those more difficult cases? Obviously as a mandated reporter, I do think some parents are, hesitant to, like I said, to open up about those kinds of conversations. So how might you deal with the situation to make sure it's manageable for the family? So first is figuring out, you know, what exactly is going on? Because like you said, some, some people don't come in and they aren't completely honest because they're scared. So with working with a child, um, and that's really my area of specialty, you know, my practice works across the age span, but I love the kids, you know, 12 and under, and the, the more angry they are, the more I enjoy the case. There's so much more that I can do with that family and with that child. So getting to what it is that's actually happening with the child, I very often will assess and evaluate actually through games. So I have a number of different um, therapeutic games that allow me to assess. And because kids are playing games, they share what it is that's happening by answering these questions without even realizing how much information that we were able to get from those therapeutic games. and. We tell all of our families, we're not here to judge you. We're not here to put anybody in a hospital. We're not here to, you know, split up anybody's family. We're here because we know that this stuff is happening. We've experienced it for years. I mean, I've been in this field in some capacity for over 20 years at this point in time. I know what people are living with. And my own child had pandas. So I absolutely understand the experiences that the families are having. You know, to hear that a child is saying that they're going to kill their parent, well, is that a flare or is that a genuine thing that they're saying? What does that look like? So determining with the child, you know, why why is that something that you felt um, needed to be said in the moment? What were you thinking? What were the body sensations? What were the feelings that were coming with it? It's really determining, is there a true risk or is this a flare that we need to work with and address? Because I don't want to send anybody to the hospital. I don't want to, you know, involve DCF or have to do a report for something that is likely not something that they're actually in control of in the moment. 
Yeah. Um, so is that the determining fact, the determining factor then is whether or not the child is in control in that moment or one of them? That is one of them for me. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm working with a kid who is calm and then says, yeah, and I have a plan on how I'm going to do it. Well, that's totally different. Mm -hmm. You know, a kid who just lashes out and says, well, I just want to die. Okay. But do you really understand what that means? Or are we saying that because we don't know how to express our emotions right now? And that's the only way to express how horrible we're feeling. So we really have to, you know, investigate that. We have to get to the bottom of it. Determine, is that a real risk or was this just a statement? Because we don't know how to communicate. Yeah. So this is a a little bit out of your scope, but I'm sure that some of these kids come to your door. So just as an example, I had had a, a patient at one point come in on five different antipsychotics, SSRIs, a cocktail of of things as well as five different antibiotics. It was a pandas case and, and simultaneously. And so for me anyway, that becomes a very difficult situation because I don't know what the true behaviors are. I don't know how the child is actually feeling because there are so many pharmaceuticals, heavy duty pharmaceuticals on board. So I know that, you know, you're very familiar with some of the side effects of some of these pharmaceuticals. And, you know, if somebody came to your doorstep with, you know, some cocktail of pharmaceuticals, how might you address that within the the counseling uh, scenario? One of the very first things that we do during the intake is we get a list of all medications. We do look at past medical history. How many times have you been on antibiotics? And then we really want to determine with the family, is medication really working or does this seem like it's maybe making things worse? And every time we feel like something's not working, is the medication provider reducing and eliminating a med to try something new, or are they just adding something else on? And if a medication provider just continues adding on another medication, I'm going to make a recommendation to work with a different provider. You know, we have a a provider that I very, very much enjoy working with because instead of being a psychiatrist, she's actually a pharmacist. Mm -hmm. So she understands all of the interactions with the medications. And when I send somebody to her with a list of meds, she will work with us and with the family and helping to determine what's working, what's not working, what's interacting and making things worse. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, it's very difficult for me to do my job anyway, (laughs) when uh, there's so many pharmaceuticals on board. And I would imagine it's difficult to speak to a child uh, in a counseling session when they are on so many heavy duty medications that can affect the psyche. So one of the things that's often discussed is this idea of, you know, anybody with what we would call a mental illness or what's often said is a chemical imbalance. What is your theory on that particular theory, if you will? (laughs) So I, in my practice, have noted that the majority of the people that come through our doors are more than likely dealing with some type of inflammation that has made it to the brain. How much of that is chemical? I am not sure that I buy into all of that because if it was chemical, then medications would be the magic wand and we'd be over and done with. I believe that it all starts with the gut. Um, It's what we're putting into our body. It's what's in our environment. 
And we have to start there. We have to fix the inflammation because when inflammation makes it to the brain, well, then we're going to be anxious. We're going to be depressed. We're going to have difficulty with processing. You know, all of those things are going to occur. Foggy brain. I hear that one all the time. And definitely when we sit down and we talk with a client and we're going over, well, what does a breakfast look like? What does a lunch look like? What does a dinner look like? Okay, well, we need to do a food mood diary and see what's happening with your diet and how that is affecting your mood. Because if the gut's inflamed and you're not pulling any nutrients out of your food, well, then your brain's not healthy either. But if your gut has been inflamed for 20 years, well, then of course your brain is inflamed. So it's about reducing inflammation through the entire body. Yeah, I really appreciate that approach because um, so often I think people separate, you know, the the brain from the body and and everything. We know everything is connected. We, you know, there's plenty of science, in fact, um, behind the idea that yes, the the gut is is in fact connected to the brain. That you know, all of these things that we take in, including not just food, but you know, things in our environment, are affecting our brain health. So that being said, unfortunately, we live in a very toxic world at this point, and it's impossible to avoid each and every one of those things. Are you seeing a rise in any particular types of disorders, if you will, coming to see you? And why do you suspect that that is? Well, I will say that having been in this field for as long as I have, I've definitely noticed some changes post-COVID. And Mm -hmm. one of the biggest changes that we're seeing has to do with the levels of anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be when a little kid came into my office, it was because the parents suspected something like ADHD. But nowadays, even as young as three, we have kids coming into the office who are exhibiting really severe anxieties, like nothing I had ever seen before. And those rates are quite astonishing at how many of them are as young as three. But even going through the age of 12, these kiddos shouldn't have these levels of anxiety and depression. I've just never seen the rates that I'm seeing right now. We Mm -hmm. definitely are also seeing higher rates of things like pans and pandas, but I would immediately point towards the anxiety and the depression that is Mm -hmm. happening in these younger kids. Right. And what do you attribute that to? So I, I know a lot of, a lot of parents have even talked about things like, you know, the isolation, the lack of interaction with um, peers and people in general for Mm -hmm. so long, um, especially during key developmental milestones. But at this point, is there any one thing is there that you think is, you know, really facilitating this rise? Or is it just a combination of all of those things, including things like mask wearing, which, you know, really created a distance between, you know, kids and and teachers and kids and their peers? So I think it's a combination of all of the things. And I'm also not entirely convinced that even if you didn't get the COVID vaccine or, you know, experienced COVID with severe symptoms that we all were exposed. And it's looking like this virus very much has a parasitic type personality trait. So how much of it is actually that this virus is in all of our bodies and is in some way affecting the gut as well as the brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. Um, 
The other thing that I've noticed is, you know, for myself personally, as well as uh, many of the patients that have come across my, my doorstep is those that have had COVID infection or have gotten the vaccine, either one do still have very high COVID titers, and they're also reactivating a number of other viral components. Um, and I've talked about this in past podcasts, things like Epstein-Barr, um, yep. uh, herpes zoster, you know, people getting shingles and those kinds of things reactivated. So I do think there's very much something unique going on with this particular scenario. And I do think it is affecting what many call our mental health to me, it's all physical, but <laughs> yeah. we're Mental. not one in the same though. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So everything is is the same. It's our health, right? Like yep. it's it's uh, there's no no such thing as being able to completely separate the mind from the body. So awesome. Um, so. What else are you seeing in your practice? So I know you're seeing lots of kiddos, but um, in the adult population, is there anything that's been different, you know, in the last several years and, and maybe not necessarily, you know, going back to the anxiety and depression, but maybe any other rise or influx of patients for any particular reason or following any particular event, something like that? So we're seeing a lot of adults that experienced trauma through the course of COVID, whether it was because their entire livelihood went away because their job no longer required them or that isolation piece is such a big part for so many people, whether we're kids or adults, you know, human beings, we are social creatures and we need personal interaction. And while all of this Zoom stuff is wonderful that we have these things today, it's not the same for people. So the number of people who feel that family relationships or interpersonal relationships were lacking and now they lack trust or other experiences that occurred just because of that isolation. And then also, you know, now that all of the COVID stuff is like the mandates are all gone, now there's this level of confusion and people are traumatized by, you know, who was right, who was wrong? Am I still supposed to be wearing a mask? Should I not be wearing a mask? How am I supposed to handle this situation? Um, So we're seeing a lot of that, a lot of trauma and confusion and definitely grief, um, very high levels of grief for people who did lose relationships or jobs or some aspect of their life, but also um, people that they lost during the course of the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. So, so often uh, I know over the last few years, there's this kind of level of aggressiveness, if you will, towards our family and friends who might have, you know, one or two things that we think are, you know, maybe a little bit different um, than, than, you know, say our, our family members. And, and unfortunately, you know, what used to be perhaps a, a hearty a discussion over Thanksgiving dinner is now become, you know, I'm blocking you on social media and I never want to speak to you again. So I do think things have been incredibly amplified as far as the reactions that come with, you know, certain behaviors. Whereas, you know, we used to have a political discussion over the table or, you know, a discussion about, Uh, social justice or things like that. Now, all of a sudden it's become an identity for so many people. And maybe you could speak a little bit to that as far as, you know, when people are coming 
to you, perhaps with these very, it just feels very rigid to me, I guess, it is this, these very rigid beliefs over the last couple of years that have been developed and an inability, and I will say it is an inability, an inability to look at anything critically or to, um, to, to really speak to anybody who might look at anything differently than they do. What that in and of itself is a trauma response, right? You know, this, this entire thing was traumatic. Um, There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear messaging. There was even some terror for many people. So the people that are responding in this way, they're, they're doing so out of a sense of trauma. They're coming from a place of fear instead of a place of safety. And when you're scared, what are you able to look at? You know, you're not critically thinking you are 100% still in fight or flight and your brain's not moving past that. So, you know, one of the big things that we do have to do when we're working with people who are coming to us and they are so rigid is we have to get to where, where was this trauma for this person? What was the traumatic event that occurred that is leading to this behavior? And once that's identified, then how do we move forward? You know, I think so many of us have really done a lot of damage. Um, and so, you know, now it's a matter of trying to pick up the pieces. So where do we go from here? How do we address some of those things with maybe friends and family members? So where it's possible, you know, um, we encourage our clients to try to make amends, to apologize, to, to say, you know, yes, I was wrong or yes, you were right, whatever the approach there needs to be. But we also let them know in some of these situations, the damage is permanent for this other person because this other person was hurt and it may not be something that you're going to be able to fix. Mm -hmm. So in those situations, then we have to acknowledge that this, this relationship is broken and it's not repairable. And we need to, to deal with the grief aspect of losing that relationship and move on from there. Yeah, I do feel like there's been so much grief, you know, for pretty much everybody, you know, depending on it, it doesn't matter, you know, what side of the political spectrum you're on, what side of the, you know, vaccine argument you're on, what side of the social justice movement, what side of the LGBTQ situation you're on, it, it, you know, but but this idea that, you know, you can only pick one side it is really um I feel very damaging uh, to, to humanity as a whole. So I guess at this point, you know, obviously we're not going to all immediately hold hands and sing Kumbaya together, but at some point I do think that there is a, a potential for some semblance of healing within our society at large. How do you foresee, and now I'm, you know, getting into you know, big philosophical questions with you, but how do you foresee some of that being facilitated? I feel that this is really going to be about um, going out to the social places. That's going to be participating in even adult extracurricular activities, whether that's martial arts or dance or, you know, any of these club type um, situations where we can remove the political conversation and start from scratch, you know, Mm -hmm. fresh with something that is helpful and bonding and creating foundations again. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, so many people now are looking to, you know, 
create more community. Um, I know personally, I've got a lot of friends uh, who are looking to create more community around growing food and, you know, sourcing food from healthy providers and meeting ranchers and, and really creating community around that, which has been, you know, pretty pretty amazing to watch and very uplifting. It's a community that I've been a part of for a long time, but I do feel like different people are coming to the table Mm -hmm. at this point, you know, searching for some kind of healing uh, from the last several years, which I do think it's important to acknowledge. One of the things that I think really has frustrated me with regard to this conversation is there's a, there's a very distinct um, feeling of the need to dismiss or not acknowledge that any of the things, you know, that went on for the last several years. And so I do feel like many people on, you know, any side of any argument do feel completely gaslighted. So how would you address that situation? You know, I I do think people are feeling gaslighted. I do think it's warranted but it continues to happen. And so, you know, people start to doubt themselves. So how might you speak to somebody who was struggling with some of that? Well, the gaslighting thing is also causing trauma for people. Um, So it's really about identifying where are these messages coming from? And is this a source that you should continue interacting with in this moment? Or do you need to find alternative sources for whatever it is? You know, if this is a new source that you feel is constantly sending you mixed messages, or if this is a person who is sending you mixed messages, is this really a relationship? You know, again, whether it's social media or real people, is this a relationship that we want to continue? Or do we want to find healthier, more reliable sources that we don't feel are going to have those behaviors? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, getting, getting, surrounding ourselves with um, healthy people is hugely important, I think, in, in facilitating healing. So, well, Mary, thank you so much for our conversation today. Uh, How can people find you? So our practice is called Infinite Potential Counseling. We are in Round Rock and we have a website. So you can search for Infinite Potential Counseling Round Rock, Texas, and you should be able to find us. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Truth Social, Locals, and Alignable. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for joining me. And I look forward to seeing you again. (laughs) Thank you. You too. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.